Well, the start of this story, and I do love a good Christmas story. Um, there's a lot, some sort of light in the sky that appears to some magi in the east, who are obviously into astrology of some kind because they've decided this light at night isn't just Starlink flying overhead or something. They, it warranted for them a very costly journey. Like it really, they really did something big because they saw a light in the sky. So astrologist, magi from the east. If you were Matthew, remember Matthew loves dropping hints from the Old Testament. What is that meant to get us thinking about? You see, Matthew's already used the genealogy to get us, his readers, thinking in terms of Israel's history, her story. It's the backstory for his volume here, his gospel. And now he's using that backstory. But I want you to see if you can work out what bit. Particularly, where in the Bible, in the Old Testament, do we get the East combined with wise men and astrologers? Any picks? There's a couple of, a couple of little, I can see little nods and light bulbs coming on. Ben, you got an idea? Mate, hit nail on the head. In Babylon, in the story of Daniel. Yep, we got all those, don't we? He, Babylon is, is the archetypical place in the East it, it, where we've got wise men and astrologers. We, and we, we looked at this one last year, or started this year, sorry. And uh, the big point of the book of Daniel that, that you can see Matthew's trying to get us to think about here is that God is sovereign. Kings come and go, but gods remain. And the plans of kings always end up with the king dead, God glorified, and God's human servant, in that case Daniel, remaining. God's plans, the plans of kings always end up with them dead, God glorified, and God's human servant remaining. Now, Matthew's choice of words, and of course God's plan to bring all of this together, actually threads together so much of the Old Testament in this passage. So many plot lines. He is like a master weaver. I've taken up a bit of crochet this year, and like I've made so many messes of things. And, 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 and you just look at the, what's in this chapter. We could spend months studying the links between the Old Testament and the New, just in this chapter. We've only got a brief, very few moments that we're going to do that today. So we're going to focus today on the first part of the story. I mean, I preached to you guys last year on the second half mainly. Uh, so we're going to pick up those bits. And don't worry, it won't be controversial. We're only going to talk about politics, espionage, and religion, okay? So we should be all pretty, pretty cruisy topics. So that's what we're going to dig into now, particularly that first half. Now, verse 2. Um, these men, these women, we're not sure. We don't even know how many of them there were. Um, that they came to Herod. And, and you might have seen there, our translations say that they tell Herod that they're going to worship this king. Now, just so that you don't get the wrong idea, Herod's not thinking what, what very religious people. Because the word worship there doesn't mean sort of what we might think it might mean. It just means to bow down to. So yeah, sure, the kind of thing you might do to gods, but definitely the kind of thing that you do to emperors and the kind of thing that you do to kings. And so often, because we've grown up with it, and, or because culture, our culture has grown up with the King James Bible and these kinds of words, they associate them with religious words. But they, these words weren't religious. These magi weren't bringing religion into the court. These were political words. Uh, in fact, the borrowing of language, we might think of, you know, worship as, some, as, a, as a religious word uses as a metaphor for maybe someone who's really, really likes Taylor Swift, right? Uh, but actually, the borrowing went the other, the other way around. It's a word that Christians borrowed from the political world of the day. 
Same with the word gospel. This whole book that Matthew, he calls it a gospel, this book. It's not a Christian word. Not originally. It's a Greco-Roman conqueror's word. Uh, we, we think of the meaning as the good news that Jesus will forgive people's sins. And it is news. It is about an announcement. But we stole that from the Romans. So that people would have some idea of just how world-changing Jesus really was. So they needed to, they needed to use world-changing language. So you use the word gospel in the Roman Empire when? When either the map has changed or the ruler of the world has changed. Those are the two, only two circumstances. It was either the announcement of the conquest of a new land by the Roman emperor with the glory of Rome filling the world as the waters cover the seas and a whole new patch just turns purple. If you play Civilization, Rome's purple. So you got there. Um, or it's the announcement of a new emperor taking the throne. That's the only times you, because it's world changing, it's map changing. It changed your life because what if the new guy has different policies than the old guy and they're not very friendly to you or your people? So you only use that word when the whole paradigm's gonna change. These are provocative words politically. They're not religious, harmless, or just what you think in your own time words. So when foreign dignitaries visit King Herod's court asking, where is the king so that I may bow down to him? And there's no record of them bowing down to Herod in the verses. Whew. Herod is hearing that with all the political force that you might expect. Uh, he is disturbed. And as we read, when King Herod is disturbed, the whole of Jerusalem gets disturbed. The streets get quiet. And so we lead into a bit of a Mission Impossible kind of scene. You know the, those movies where there's, um, there's, there's the hero and the hero's always got like a, that, little, that little thing in their ear to tell them, oh, and, you know, stop and hide here. And the guards walk past and then you slide through. So he's always just a step ahead of everything. But here, Joseph and the Magi are Jason Bourne and the angels are the voices in their ears about what move to make next. So the next verse that we get, an angel appears and diverts the Magi. We're getting down to that bit. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Sorry, we were, I missed Ah, oh, there it is. We are... On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This buys Jesus and Mary some time. And Herod realizes, yeah, the Magi, I don't think they're coming back. Herod's been thwarted because he wanted, he set up so that he could take Jesus out. That's what happens when people are backed into a corner. Have you ever noticed that? That people are mostly pretty reasonable. But when they're backed into a corner, things get extreme. People's reactions get extreme. Well, this is him. So Herod gives the order to kill all the kids that could possibly be this king. 
And so the angel intervenes again, get another crackling in the earpiece. Joseph, get up, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. And again, like Boaz, Joseph obeys. He gets up, takes the child and his mother at night and leaves for Egypt. Now, Herod's actions inspire huge grief. I mean, I want you to understand if we had mass murder of children in, in Hobart, how badly we would be grieving as a community. And this is a grief that, that we haven't seen in the Bible since the exile, since the days, when, since the days of Daniel, when, when Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and countless other children were stolen from their families and gathered together at Ramah and marched off to Babylon. That's the reference here. Rachel was the genetic great-great-grandmother of every Israelite. And so her name is used here to, to represent every Israelite mum refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. If Mary and Joseph, you get this incredible relief of survival as they seek asylum in Egypt as refugees, which Matthew says is exactly as God said would happen. Now, not many years after this, Herod dies. And so the earpiece crackles again. It's the angel. And he says, hey, the, the, the same message as last time, but the exact reverse. Word for word, in fact, it's the same as last time. But instead, it's get up, take the child and his mother, and go back to Israel. There's a lady just outside there might need a bit of help getting in. Someone wouldn't mind just giving her a bit of help. That'd be lovely. Thanks, Paul. Um, and again, Joseph trusts God and he obeys, which again is another act of trust. Because if you think about it, you've got to go back to a place where someone's trying to kill your child. Like that's, that's, you've got to trust to do that too. And in fact, you could imagine Joseph not trusting because when he gets back there, he gets that bloke who, you know, even, um, even one of your elders can't pronounce his name. It's hard enough. I'm not going to try. Um, this, this new king who's as bad as Herod ever was. And so Joseph gets scared, but again, the, the voice comes in, another angel. And this message in a dream says, head up to Nazareth. And so the young family finds a rental there, about 100 k's north of Jerusalem, where their little boy is finally safe, out in the boondocks, but safe. Which, as Matthew says, is again, exactly what God said would happen. And so we get this little episode playing out just as in the book of Daniel, isn't it? Because God is sovereign again. He knows everything that's going to happen again. He's ahead of the game again. He's the voice in the ear. Kings have come and gone, but God has remained. And God's human servant, Jesus, also remains. Everything Jesus does here has that purpose. We, 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 we've, we've talked about how... how um, uh, Everything Jesus does is something that Israel had done in her infancy, that, that he is being like a new Israel here. It's sort of hence the title of the series, The Importance of Being Israel. I mean, when humanity found ourselves exiled from the garden, uh, God chose the family of Israel to save the world. That, that's sort of their, their history, their, their beginning point. Um, and not long after that, one member of this nation, coincidentally, coincidentally named Joseph, narrowly escapes death by heading to Egypt much like Mary's Joseph. In Egypt, Joseph obeys God in exemplary fashion. As I go on, you'll realize I can't really, um, you can't distinguish which Joseph I'm talking about. And because of Joseph's obedience, Joseph ends up saving lives in Egypt. But Joseph didn't just save people in Egypt, as you, many of you will know from Genesis. He saved the whole world from a famine, which of course 
Jesus coming to save the world is exactly what Matthew's saying he's going to do. Now, Jesus, Joseph, sorry, Joseph's family grows in Egypt, becomes this nation of Israel. And at the end of Israel's time in Egypt, the king, Pharaoh, commits mass murder of male infants in order to retain control of his power because he's scared of the infants. Just like Herod. But one baby boy escapes. Just like our story. A kid named Moses in this case. And like Jesus, Moses had to leave his country to avoid being killed, but was then told by God, you can go back to where you grew up because the people who are trying to kill you are now dead. Exactly the same story. So an Israelite who's reading the story about Jesus, their brain is going crazy with the references. An Israelite who knows their history hears this. They're instantly back in the old story. This Jesus has been through everything that we've ever been through as a nation. Like if there's anyone who's worthy to do this, this guy's been through everything that even as a whole nation in our history that we've ever done. He's the perfect guy to represent Israel. But there's an extra thing. There's a new element here. Uh, the prophecy that Matthew chose to quote, Micah's prophecy, because he doesn't, it's, did you notice they're out of Bethlehem? Well, not just come a, someone who's qualified to represent Israel, to, to, um, to be the, uh, the, the true Israelite, but out of Bethlehem will come one who is going to rule over Israel. And the extent of that reign, well, Matthew 28, go through to, to the end of the, end of the, uh, the, the book. See, Matthew's ends and beginnings match up so well. It says there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, there's, there's, Jesus isn't just a good representative. He's the ruler. There, there are two planes of existence for people in the ancient world, right? Two planes. There's, there's, in my, it's, it's a bit like Raphael and Fiotti, right? Raphael exists in his body. Things that I can punch, touch, and kick, right? That's the things that matter. The th the, and, and that's the world that Raphael exists in. God exists in the world of like interesting thoughts, all the things I can imagine, right? And those are the, they're the two worlds that these guys have. There's the world of the stuff you can touch and all of the, the stuff of the spiritual world. That, that's like all of the, the things that are out there that we can't quite grab a hold of. And that's all that exists. You've got the stuff that you can touch, stuff that you can't touch. That's everything right there. And here, Jesus says, both of those fit in my pocket. I've got all, I've got all authority in all places, they're their, they're their mind to rule as I see fit. Now, what I've, what's really grabbed me about this chapter, as I've read and thought and mulled, is that Herod gets what a lot of my friends don't actually understand. Jesus demands their fealty, their loyalty, their, 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 their submission. Even my non-Christian friends. Because they're a part of the world. That gentle Jesus, so meek and mild, no crying he makes. You see, see, Matthew's gospel is the announcement of the arrival of your ruler and your friend's rulers and your boss's ruler, whether you agree with that or not. That's who Jesus understands himself to be. You and Herod have something in common. This Christmas, there is someone who is coming to you, even if only in these words, and saying to you, I am your king. You're hearing that announcement now. 
All right, so we've done politics, we've done espionage, we just finish up with a little bit of religion. <laughs> two little things, two ways that we can respond to this. We have two reactions to the arrival of Jesus, and I think it's not, it's not, a, bad, it's not a bad paradigm for us too. When Herod had threatened all that he held dear to be taken away from him, he got defensive. And when you get defensive, you actually, you actually get aggressive. That's understandable, because Jesus was claiming rule over his life. And yet the Magi had a very different response. They're not nobodies. Like, you don't, you don't just decide to take a holiday to the other side of, you know, the, the Arabian Peninsula and uh, rock up with frankincense and gold and myrrh if, if, if you're a nobody. These are significant people. And their response when someone showed up who was better and more important than them was to be willing to receive that, for, be willing for that to be true, to bow the knee, to be, make themselves lower than him. And, and, and I think what we can have through the year is just a sense that, well, we don't, we don't have a sense that Jesus is come to us. And, and Christmas can give us this, this moment to, to be reminded of what it is when Jesus rocks up on the scene and says, hey, I am not just a representative of God. I'm not just doing the religious thing. I'm, I want to be, I am the ruler of your life. And so the question is, how, what heart, with what heart are we going to respond to that? When Jesus pushes in, what part of your life are you quite cool with Jesus being Lord of? And so you've built up your life to be quite comfortable with that. And then what parts are you less okay with? What, what, what parts of life would it be hard to say, well, I'm, I'm going to let Jesus and his kingship the gospel, because of course that's what the gospel is, right? Remember the announcement that the, there's a new king of all things. The map has changed. It's all, it all, it's all Jesus' color, whatever color that might be. Every bit of your life, what part of it is not shaped by Jesus' kingship? I'm troubled by asking myself this question. What areas of my life are, un, are untransformed? I'm like, oh, gee, I wish I'd stop sitting in that area. And the reason why, because I, I don't let God come in there because I'm embarrassed and defensive and I want to I sort of retain a bit of sovereignty in that area. I've got to check my heart. Do I think that I'm more powerful than God or that it's good for me to retain power in this area? Or am I better off submitting and surrendering? Because the Magi, they didn't leave with blood on their hands and a bit of bitterness. Like they gave up, they gave up a lot. They gave up plenty of money and they left with joy. They were, they were happy. What's your reaction? What's the reaction of your heart and my heart to when Jesus gets close and close and uncomfortably close? I, I want to be like the Magi. Now, the second thing for us is, in, in Matthew 28, this is an interesting thing. Um, sometimes we don't link these two statements quite so well. So this is the, the, something called, that called the Great Commission, or that's what Christians have come to call this, this statement. Jesus saying, just before he returns to the Father, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And 
We haven't linked the two always. You see, I, when you speak about Jesus, who are you speaking about? Are you speaking about a friend that you sometimes talk to when you choose to call them like a friend? Well, Jesus is that. But that's not the primary way Matthew wants you to understand him. And so what are your friends going to think about Jesus? That he's a wise man? No, wise men came and went. Someone in touch with the logos of the cosmos leading us to enlightenment? Well, no, because none of th- those kinds of things, he's a wise guy, he's an influencer, he's a, those things don't demand anything of your friends. You can take or leave someone, even if everything Jesus ever said was right and perfect in terms of how to live life. You can still, you can still take it or leave it and it doesn't matter. Do your friends have a sense that you think that they need, that they need to bow the knee to Jesus? I worry that I, this year, have misrepresented Jesus to the people I've been trying to evangelize to. Now, look, I understand, like, I understand it. Um, our, our, our age has got a difficult relationship between, with power and abuse of power, with authority and being controlled and, and, and manipulated and gaslit and all of those things. I understand we, we don't want people to think the wrong thing about Jesus in the other direction by emphasizing Jesus' uh, authority in a way that gives them a, 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 a wrong view of God's heart of love and that his authority is actually one that doesn't end up taking away yours but actually enhances your self-control as, of course, being a fruit of the Spirit. Like, like I understand why our instinct is that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, I'm just, I, I, I'm just worried about their souls, you know? Like, I'm worried, I'm worried that, they, that they don't, that maybe they don't get it. Maybe they, haven't, maybe they don't get that there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a map-changing gospel that we're actually talking about. Maybe they just think that we think we're onto a really good self-help book. And, I mean, maybe that says something about the way that I talk in general about Jesus that is problematic. Or maybe I live, or what I even want to believe about Jesus is problematic. I don't want the blood of my friends on my head. Uh, we don't want the fate of, the fate of our friends to be, uh, to, to, to be sort of them saying, hey, why didn't you tell me it was like this? Why didn't you tell me it was like this? Come on, what, did you not care about me? I mean, the, the, these are the, the, the thoughts that, 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 that this passage forces me to ask about the way that I represent Jesus. Not that I need to go all of a sudden and, and for me to be belligerent and me to try and control them, but to introduce to them the Jesus who is actually the king so that they know what it would really be to both go to him, but also what it means to reject him. I hope it's encouraging for you this Christmas, even though that might seem a hard word to end on, because the one who is this great ruler, the reason why we do put the good at the start of the good news, because it is there in the Greek, it's got that sort of good prefix at the start of it. The reason why we put the good there is because it is good to be ruled by Jesus. It is, we go away with joy. So as, even as much as we want to make sure that we, uh, as, as, as we, we, when, we're, when we're relating our faith, when we're talking about Jesus, just even to each other in the way that we speak, because the way, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Let's talk about obeying Jesus more. Let's, let's talk about, talk about uh, doing what he says, submitting like Joseph did. Like, I feel like I'm saying almost like foreign words sometimes when I talk about the way Joseph acted like Boaz, not, be, not because... It's not our culture. But if we can do both, if we can put together the, the rule of Jesus and joy, we'll be, we're going to be doing a pretty good job of evangelism, I think.
So I'll, I'll ask you to join me now. Please pray for me and let's pray for each other. For here, God, tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much that he is the king. And so thank you so much that he is the good king. Thank you that he's the rescuing king, the one who wants to save us from our, our failures and our misses and our deliberate ones. Father, thank you that his rulership is good and does not destroy us or take away our authority, but leads us and gives us our sense of self-control. But Father, sometimes our words, don't, our words match more of our culture, and it's understandable, Lord, and yet with the beautiful thing that you do is that you speak your words in to change our culture. And Father, we, we just pray as a church family that our church family culture would feel different to the outside world so that when we go to work, we feel like, oh, my words don't quite fit here. And when we come to church, we feel like, ah, oh, yes, that's right. We all speak like this. Ah, oh, it's so good to be with family again. Father, we, we, we really ask that you would um, make us like that so that we would be really representing like the real Jesus to our friends who we love. Father, this Christmas, please do save some of them. And um, Lord, help us in our hearts when Jesus comes close. As, as you speak to us even now. Father, help us to be willing to bow the knee rather than to hold you at arm's length or go full machine gun style rebellion like Herod did. Because, Father, that way, as we hear you tell us tonight, lies joy. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us that joy. In Jesus' name, amen.